Jesus, please mention my name when you talk to your Father today. Life down here feels so strained. My brokenness is in the way. I'm not that good. Don't pray like I should. Yet I'm amazed you get me through. He sees me, but he hears you. Okay, so today we are going to talk about a subject in the Word that's a favorite of mine. It's intercession. So before we get into intercession, I just wanted to go back over God's nature. Our God is a God of love. We know that, right? Something that we forget, and I know a good chunk of Christianity forgets, is that our God is also a God of justice. He's a God of justice. That he is Almighty God, and as such, he sets a standard for us. It's a universal standard for all mankind. When uh, mankind abides by this standard, he's blessed abundantly. However, if he violates his standard, there is judgment to be faced. And that's how it works. It's simple and it's clear. Right. So you have God's judgment. And when we're reading the Old Testament, which we will be today, a lot of times we refer to God's wrath and it can seem almost contradictory to this God of love that we know from the New Testament. Well, the way that I keep it straight in my head is, is that this is God's standard. And when when it talks about, you know, the consequences, this is God's judgment. OK, God is a God of mercy as well as being a God of judgment. We know mercy means withholding of merited judgment, okay? I was thinking of Psalm 103 where it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. There's this situation here where God has a standard, he sets the standard, and then mankind promptly violates it. And so mankind has judgment coming to him, because that's part of the standard, right? But God is able to intervene and show mercy. It's withholding of merited judgment, and that's a beautiful thing. That just shows how much God loves us. And this is the reason that Jesus was sent to mankind. God understood that we, left to ourselves, would always fail. And as a result, we would always be destined for judgment. Does that make sense to everybody? He knew that we needed a Lord and a Savior to intercede for us. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. So take your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 32. Now, God in the Old Testament had a different relationship with his people that he ha than he has with his people now. We are God's children now. He has the relationship of a father to his children. That wasn't the case in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was God and his people, and the people, the chosen people, were Israel. And it was a covenant relationship between the two. Now, what does a covenant relationship mean? It means that both sides sign up to the, the arrangement. You, you see what I'm saying? That God says, I will do this and this and this. And the people said, okay, we will do this and this and this. So it was a mutual cooperation. It was a covenant between God and his people. 
God always, always, always kept his part of the bargain. But Israel did not. Israel failed time and time and time again. So if you look in the Exodus chapter 32, look in verse 9. It says, I have seen these people, Yahweh said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Do you know where that term stiff-necked comes from? If you spend a lot of time looking back over your shoulder at where you came from, you'll get a stiff neck. (laughs) And Israel spent a lot of time looking back to Egypt, didn't they? Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Wow, that doesn't sound like that loving God of the New Testament, does it? Well, remember, we need to understand that this is God's judgment that we're talking about here. So you can depersonalize it a little bit and say, this is merited judgment that is coming upon Israel. Now, look in verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Yahweh, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains? and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and I will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster uh, that he had threatened. Isn't that something? So you have a situation where God is determined to bring judgment upon Israel for Israel's sins. And then you have Moses, a man, a mere man, as my Trinitarian friends always love to talk about, the mere man. And here is Moses, a mere man, speaking to God and helping God change his mind. Wow. This doesn't really fit with our understanding of things, does it? I mean, think about it. God is supposed to be all perfect, all knowledgeable, right? And once he makes up his mind, that's it. There's no mind changing going on here. But we find this quite a bit in the Old Testament. We find that God relented. God changed his mind or changed his purpose. So why is this going on here? I taught maybe, I guess, a month and a half ago, two months ago on agency. Does everybody remember that? Agency means that God delegates authority to people on earth to do certain things, that he gives them authority. So here was Moses speaking to God, talking back to God and helping God to, you know, he was interceding for Israel. He was standing between God and Israel and interceding for them, and God withdrew his judgment. That's agency. The fact that a man can have that kind of authority to speak to God and have God change his purposes. Now, this is an interesting point here, because a lot of times when you talk to certain people, they would like you to believe that this is an example of condescension, that God is just condescending to people and saying, well, you know, God really doesn't change his mind, and he really doesn't listen to humans, you know, interceding, that God is just condescending to people and helping them to feel at ease and feel like he's just one big happy God part of the family. But that's not the case. Nobody's dumb here. Nobody needs to be patronized. That Moses was accomplishing something very spiritually real here by interceding 
for Israel to God. So that's what we're talking about today, intercession. Intercession is the act of interceding, of mediation, of interposition between parties at variance with a view to reconciliation, prayer, or solicitation to one party in favor of another sometimes against another. So that's intercession. Intercession is standing in the gap, the Bible calls it, standing in the gap. Another phrase that it uses is standing in the breach. So as I said before, the intercessor isn't standing in the breach between the sinner and God. The intercessor is standing in the breach between the sinner and God's judgment, okay? And that's an important distinction, and I think we need to keep that in mind. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, look in verse 10. says, And I heard a loud voice saying from heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. This is what our enemy Satan does, the accuser the accuser of the brethren, that it's Satan's quote-unquote job to go before God and accuse the brethren. And as we'll see, he is counteracted by the intercessor. Go to Psalm chapter 106. Psalm 106. And look in verse 16. It says, In the camp they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. Dathan was a man who had rebelled against Moses. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. So we see here judgment, right? This is judgment. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their god for an image of a bull, which eats grass. They forgot the god who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. How about that? So that is the ministry. Part of the ministry of Moses was to stand in intercession between the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the people of Israel who had it coming to them. That's intercession, standing in the breach. And as I said before, it's an act of agency that this is authority conferred upon man. God extends his authority to man to speak to him on behalf of others, to reason with God in defense of others. I think that's incredible. I mean, it's, it's really too big to get your head around, that you have reasoning capacity with the Almighty God, that you can talk things over with him, and that there would be an exchange of ideas and perspectives. You're not wiser than God, but God gives you the capacity to defend others by your presence and prayer. Does that make sense? That they have it coming to them, but you are stepping in in intercession for them. Go to Genesis chapter 18. See, and, you know, amongst religious circles, we're just mere men. We're powerless. We're dust in the wind. But this is not how it is in the Bible. That's not how it is in the Bible. Genesis 18, look at verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? The city here is Sodom. Will you really sweep it away and spare the place for the sake of 
and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with wicked, with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. How about that? So this is Abraham standing in prayer to God and saying, Look, God, reasoning with him and saying, If there are 50 people here, would you kill them along with the wicked? And God said, For their sake, those 50, I'll spare the city. Right? Verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Wow. How about that? So that was the, that was the final deal, right? If there are 10 people in Sodom, Sodom would, or God would not destroy Sodom. What did God end up doing with Sodom? Destroying it. So basically what it came down to is there was Lot. And scripture refers to him as just Lot. So, so Lot was considered righteous. And then there was Lot's family. And even within God, uh, Lot's family, his wife turned around and looked back. And what happened? She was turned into a pillar of salt. So she got judgment upon her. That's pretty interesting. Go to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22. So you see this, this kind of bartering thing going on between Abraham and God. Ezekiel 22, look in verse 23. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the land, you are a land that has had no rain or showers in the day of wrath. There is a conspiracy of her princes within her, like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, take treasures and precious things, and make many widows within her. So this is talking about the political class of Israel, right? He's saying they are like lions tearing their prey. They're using and abusing the people they're, they're entrusted to take care of. Rather than helping the people, they feed upon them. Verse 26, Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean. And they shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. How about that? That's, that? I think that's a great description of what men and women of God, ministers, are supposed to do. They're supposed to distinguish between the holy and the common. They're to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. And these men were not doing it. These religious men who were failing. Verse 27, Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. So in other words, both the politicians and the religious men were being bribed. They were receiving bribes. 
Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. How about that? A lot of that going on in Christianity today, isn't there? Right? We heard it a couple of years ago during the election. The Lord said, the Lord said, and it turned out the Lord wasn't saying any such thing. We got to remember that Jesus warned about wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Christianity, after it's been politicized, is no longer Christianity. And I just want to make that point. We got to be very careful about claiming to speak for God when when God hasn't spoken. And that's, that's very important. Verse 29, the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. I look for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand for me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down their own heads, all on their own heads, all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So, so standing in the gap here, standing in the gap. Remember, Moses had done it and Abraham had done it or attempted to do it for Sodom. And this is intercession. This is what intercession is all about. Go to Isaiah chapter 59. We've got a record in here that's kind of like the one we just got finished reading in Ezekiel. Isaiah 59. It starts off with one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 1. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Isn't that beautiful? That God has the capacity to listen to us and to save us. We are overburdened with our sins, but God will save us. Verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongues muttered evil things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Isn't that something? I I thought that was really interesting. They rely on empty arguments. Isn't that something? And speak lies. And how true is this? I mean, you look at our culture right now, and I brought this up. I think I bring it up every fellowship, but, you know, the lies that we are enduring in this culture, that same-sex relationships are just as natural as traditional relationships. I mean, how insane is that? And people make those statements and nobody challenges them on it. Or, you know, if you don't like your gender, gender, you can just change it. Men can get pregnant just like women. It's crazy, but nobody ever challenges it. These are what are known as empty arguments. Look at verse 7. It says their feet rush into sin and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction marks their way. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. Does this sound familiar? This comes from Romans chapter 3. So justice is far from us, verse 9, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. So this is talking about a really spiritually dark time, isn't it? That they're supposed to be inspired and enriched and enlightened, and instead they're they're groping around like blind men. Sounds like our culture. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. I, I had to look that up on the internet to see what that sounded like. Uh, I, you know, I went on YouTube and I found a growling bear. 
and it, it it's a you know ah. the idea here is is that things are so wrong that you're growling like a bear we moan mournfully like doves has anybody ever heard a mourning dove do you know by the way the term mourning dove the word mourning doesn't mean like morning like in the morning it means like it's mourning a grief we look for justice and find none but the de- uh for deliverance but it is far away For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. I mean, that's how I feel in this land of perversion that we live in now. We are, in this country, supposed to be the greatest country in the world. And what are we doing? We're exporting our devilishness all over the world. They had this, uh, not too long ago, this... This individual named Matt Walsh, he went to tribes in Africa and he told them what was going on in this country as far as gender, you know, ideology and that men can become women and women can become men. And and this video clip shows these these people in in these just wretchedly poor towns in Africa laughing at Americans, laughing at them. And then Matt Walsh says to him, would you ever come to America? And they all looked at each other and said, never. <laughs> I mean, that's how insane it is. Um, verse 12, I'll read it. For our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever before us and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies in our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back. Now think about, and listen to this, these are personification. Justice is driven back. You can think about a person, like a person named Justice. He's driven back. Justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. How about that? That's what happens to a culture that has engaged in deliberate sin against God. That you don't have justice, you don't have righteousness, that you don't have truth, you don't have honesty. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. How about that? For all the Christians who have stood up and spoken out against this evil, what happens to them? They're set upon. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. That's something. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath on his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. So, you know, I think it's foolish that we we don't acknowledge this aspect of God, that God is a God of mercy and love and forgiveness, but you can only push God so far so often. And then you have to deal with the consequences. Verse 19, from the West, men will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. And there it is right there. God is looking for repentance. 
So where do we get salvation? Through Jesus Christ, our intercessor. And we're going to look a little bit of that. Turn to Luke chapter 23. You know, you spend any time in the Old Testament, it'll bum you out. I'll guarantee you. It just seems hopeless, doesn't it? And that's why in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to their Redeemer. Luke 23. Now, this is Jesus Christ who was hanging on the cross. Mankind couldn't deal with it. And look at verse 33. And when they were come to the place, which was called Calvary, there they crucified him, the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is intercession. This is intercession. And it was in intercession in spite of what they were doing to him. Isn't that wonderful? He was talking to God and he was saying, you know, God's wrath is ready to be revealed. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. How about that? He was standing in the breach for Israel. Goes on and says, and they parted his raiments, raiment and cast lots, and the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. So isn't that something that Jesus was praying for people, even at the same time he was being mocked and ridiculed? So I want to talk a little more about Jesus, our intercessor. Go to Psalm 110, I'm sorry, Psalm 110. This is a psalm that many of us have heard before. Psalm 110, look in verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Well, first of all, this, this psalm, this line from this psalm is prophetic. It's talking about a coming of someone, right? We know to be Jesus Christ and that he was going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is only mentioned in two places. The first place is in Genesis, and it's only maybe four lines about Melchizedek. This is the story that this psalm references. Basically, the way the story goes is that Abraham had gone out to fight against these kings that had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and had taken them and Lot into captivity. So Abraham went out, fought against them, defeated them, and came back with the spoils of this war. And upon re returning, he was met by this priest. Now remember, this is before the law was given. This is before the law of Moses. So this is a priest of a different order. And we're gonna, I'm going to be using this term order. What this means is I was raised Roman Catholic. And in Roman Catholicism, we have priests. We have priests and, and they are of different orders. Like there's the Jesuits and there are the Dominicans and there are the Franciscans. These are different orders of priesthood. In the Bible, we have two orders of priesthood. You have the order of the Levites and the order of Melchizedek. And we'll read about that here. All right. It says uh, in, in the scripture in, in Genesis, I, you don't have to turn there, but it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, 
who delivered our enemies or your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this is the priest, Melchizedek, okay? And it was to this priest that Abraham gave the first tithe. Isn't that something? And that's a big deal. So we're going to be looking at this order of Melchizedek and how this relates to Jesus Christ. Before I go into that, though, I want to recognize one thing that, you know, when we read the Bible, uh, there's this notion of that there is a red thread that runs throughout the entire Bible. Do you know who that red thread is? It's Jesus Christ. So in every book of the Bible, Jesus Christ is emphasized. Okay, different books have different emphasis. All right. For example, in Genesis, Jesus Christ is known as the promised seed of the woman. In Ruth, Jesus Christ is known as the kinsman redeemer. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder. In Ecclesiastes, he, he is the one among a thousand. The book we're going to be looking at now is the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, Jesus Christ is known as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So go to Hebrews chapter seven, Hebrews seven. Now remember, our, our main topic here is intercession. Hebrews 7, look in verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, which means king of peace. So, when you that remember, he's the king of Salem. King of Salem. That means king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What are we talking about here? Well, remember that you had Melchizedek. He was a priest. Did he come from any lineage or any genealogy like the priests in the Levitical line? No, no. There was no, you know, his father wasn't necessarily a priest or those before him or those after him. So he just kind of appears in the Old Testament. All right. So we have the two different priesthood, the two different orders. We have Melchizedek, we have the Levites. And I just want to remind everybody of that. So which one came first? Melchizedek. That order came first. Now, the reason that this requires kind of going back over, the author of the book of Hebrews is going over this with the Jewish Christians. He's reminding them of certain things. Why? Because it was of the mind of the Jewish Christians that the law was God's grand plan. Was the law God's grand plan? No, 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 no. We know that the law was there as a temporary thing to move from, you know, mankind from Abraham through to the promise, right? Jesus Christ. So this is important to keep in mind, all right? We have two priesthood. Melchizedek came first. He took tithes from Abraham. The Levites came later when Moses gave the law. They were responsible in the law for managing the tabernacle and later the temple. They were responsible for the daily sacrifices. The high priest was once every year responsible for entering into the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, there was extensive genealogies of these Levitical priests, right? To verify that they were of the tribe Levi, okay? Very important. So you go back in the Old Testament, you, you'd read these records, and they go on and on and on. This person begat this person. This person begat this person. And, and I honestly, I find it really difficult to read these records. Um, I think some people could probably make more sense out of them. But anyway, they're completely accurate. There was no such thing for Melchizedek. There was nothing like it. There was just a couple of verses that we find in Genesis, and then the reference that we just read in Psalms. Okay? 
So this is important. So look in verse 4. It says, just think how great he was, this Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descent to Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, and this is important here, without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Okay? The lesser person is blessed by the greater. So between Levi and Melchizedek, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Who came first? Melchizedek. Who received tithes from Abraham? Melchizedek. Who was the greater? Melchizedek. In other words, those who were of the law were blessed by this earlier relationship. Okay, very important. In the one case, the tenth was or is collected by men who die, right? The Levitical priests. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. And this is kind of a rhetorical thing that Melchizedek didn't just live forever. Point here is that he had no genealogy. Um, one might say to Levi, who collected the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. People who wanted to make a big deal about the Levitical priest said, Look, remember, Levi was Abraham's grandson. Okay. And when Melchizedek was taking tithes from Abraham, Levi was, you know, he wasn't even a gleam in his daddy's eye. Great grandson. I'm calling him his grandson. So it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Okay. Makes sense. Verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, all you Jewish people who think the law is so great, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Aaron was the first priest of the Levitical priesthood. So in other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, if the law was so great, why is there another priesthood for somebody who was to come? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? For where or for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. And there it is. That's an important point here. So there was a change of the priesthood. It changed from the Levitical priesthood to this priesthood of this coming Savior, right? This one who was in the order of Melchizedek. That was Jesus. So when Jesus came, he changed the priesthood. If he changed the priesthood, he changed the law too. That there was a changing of the law that corresponded to the changing of the priesthood. Okay, does that make sense? Verse 13. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from what tribe? Judah, not Levi. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. How about that? Now, I think that's very important. Remember, Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. He was of a different order. Those who were of the order uh, that Moses instituted for the law were the Levitical priests from the line of Levi. Okay, but Moses never said anything about this other priesthood. Verse 15, and what we have said is even more clear 
if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. I love that. The power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever, forever, and the big emphasis of forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Remember, that's what that psalm said, 110. It says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. What's that former regulation? That was the law. The law was set aside because it was weak and useless. Now, you talk to a Messianic Christian, you talk to a Jewish person, their head starts spinning when you say something like that. But that's what the scripture says. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope was introduced by which we draw near to God. There's a new program here. You know, people say, well, you know, I'm not a dispensationalist, so I don't care what you are. There is a change of program here. In the Old Testament, it was the law of Moses. But there's a new priesthood. And because there's a new priesthood, there is a change of the law, right? Verse 17, for it is declared, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm, I read that already. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope was, is introduced by which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, forever. Jesus Christ is a priest forever. Verse 22. Now that's important. And this is why. Listen to this. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in the office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Does everybody grasp that? In the Old Testament, under the Levitical priesthood, the priest could be a priest until he died. And that was the end of his priesthood. But Jesus Christ has a different priesthood. As the psalm goes, you are a, a priest forever, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ lives eternally. He lives eternally. He has a permanent priesthood. Does that make sense to everybody? 25, therefore he is able. Now listen to this. This is so cool. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So when we're talking about the intercession of Jesus Christ, that he intercedes for us, it's not a temporary deal. It's permanent that Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. Why is he com a complete Savior? Because he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, that he never dies, that his job forever is to intercede for us. I think that's spectacular. 26, such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You know, there's this discussion out there that, you know, are you once saved, always saved? 
you know, and then other people say, well, maybe you're one saved, but you can lose your salvation. Well, Jesus Christ is not a complete Savior if you can lose your salvation. He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's his job. Verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered what? Himself. Now, here's a mind bender. So the high priest would walk in with the sacrifice and make the sacrifice, right, in the Old Testament. But here, Jesus is the high priest, and he's walking in with the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is him. So he's not only the offering high priest, but he's also the sacrifice that's being offered. Does that make sense? Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. It's a complete deal. He was the perfect sacrifice, and he was a priest after a permanent priesthood. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. That's the Old Testament. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior. He's the perfect Savior. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where Jesus Christ is right now. Jesus Christ was crucified. He died. He was buried. He was three days in the grave. For all intents and purposes, as far as Satan knew, he had won. And then God conquered death by raising him from the dead, the resurrection from the dead. As Romans tells us that being raised, he can no longer be subject to death, right? That if you are raised from the dead, you have conquered death. Death has no more power over you. And that's where Jesus Christ is right now. He was raised from the dead. He died for our sins. He was raised we have newness of life in him, and he was resurrected, and he sits at the right hand of God. That's pretty amazing. Go to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. So we live in this world. We have a risen Lord and Savior. The Bible says that we are reckoning ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive unto Christ, right? The Bible also says that our lives are hid with Christ in God, okay? That's important for us to keep in mind. Uh, but we still have to live in this fallen world, right? So... While we have been redeemed completely, saved completely, we are still dealing with sin day by day. Do we need an intercessor now? Yes, we do. Romans 8:22. It says, "For we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time." Painful. It's a painful time. 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the ad our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, right? For in this hope we, ha we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he, is al he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit, now the Spirit here is Jesus, okay? This Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit itself, this Jesus Christ himself, intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit in Jesus intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
How about that? So we have groanings, right? The whole creation is in groanings. We ourselves are in groanings, and the Spirit itself groans, this Jesus Christ. He is the intercessor for us, for all of us, okay? And it's important that we keep that in mind. In the REV, John Shanehite translated this, nothing in God's creation is free from the horrific consequences of sin. As our fellow brother and as one who loves God's creation, Jesus groans too. So it troubles Jesus with what's going on in this world, and he actively intercedes for us. Turn to First Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 1. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for whom? Everyone. Does that qualify? Are there qualifiers there? No, there aren't. We are supposed to be intercessors. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, the wise Christian will watch for opportunities to do good, to speak the life-bringing words to sinners, to pray for the rescuing prayer of intercession. Intercession should be very much part of each of our ministries, that we are interceding. And remember what I talked about before, that we have the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Remember we read that? And that we have agency, that God has authorized us to talk to him, to reason through things, to to talk things over with him, to step in and do what Moses did for Israel, what Abraham tried to do for Sodom. We have that capacity to do for ourselves or for our families, for our friends, for our culture, right? For believer and unbeliever, we have the capacity to do that. Look at verse 2, for kings and for all in authority that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We should be interceding for these people. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator. Mediator, you could translate it intercessor. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for blessing us with that understanding. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for just giving us the hope in Christ that we are not the we're not hopeless in the Old Testament burdened under your judgment. But Father, we get to see the greatness of your mercy through Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can go out and intercede for our family first and then Father for others in this world. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for that, for the authority to be able to do that in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. He intercedes, yes, for me, protects me from things unseen, right between God and me. He intercedes for me, say, he intercedes.